always, it is a joy and privilege to lead you in this study of the Bible. Let's open our Bibles to Matthew 15. If you can remember from last time, we are in a section of Matthew that presents to us two cycles, and each cycle follows a little bit of a pattern. It gives you some information and some uh, uh, actions of Jesus, a demonstration of Jesus' ministry, followed by a negative response, followed by the positive response. And this leads all the way up to verse 20 of chapter 16, where we have that sort of final and full profession of Christ by the lips of the Apostle Peter, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. So each cycle, and we began that last week, we looked at some activity of Jesus, and we looked at that first response, which indeed was a negative response. Now today we're looking at the positive response, and this response comes from an unlikely person, a foreigner, a Gentile, a former pagan. She is the example, according to Jesus, of great faith. And since this points us to saving faith in Jesus, I want us to take time to dissect this faith. You remember all the way back in 10th grade biology or anatomy class, you start by dissecting a cricket and you identify the different parts. Well, that's what we're going to do today, today. And that's why I'm calling this message the anatomy of saving faith. This is what we're looking at. This great faith. Jesus calls this woman. He says, you have great faith. This is great faith. Much like he did, uh, we saw months ago when he spoke to uh, the, the Roman leader, Roman military leader. You have great faith. He was in awe of that faith. He's in awe of another Gentile's faith here, this Canaanite woman. You know, I spent a lot of time up here explaining from this very pulpit, for both sake of believers and unbelievers, the contents of true faith, of saving faith. Why? So that you would either begin your journey of genuine faith or that you would continue in biblical faith. So what is true faith, how to pursue it? Let's read this together. Follow along. Matthew chapter 15, beginning in verse 21, and I'll read down to verse 28, and we'll study this together. Matthew 15, verse 21, And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. The disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she's crying after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done to you, be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. This is the word of God. This is such a beautiful passage, isn't it? Such a wonderful thought. I just love how Matthew shows us uh, Jesus full of righteous indignation against sin, against false faith, against hard-heartedness of the Pharisees. And then, right on the tail of that, he shows us a Jesus full of grace and mercy, someone who would welcome an outsider. How gentle, how kind, how loving that someone who is a total stranger, someone who just recently, likely most recently learned of 
Jesus from Nazareth, someone who probably didn't fit in with all the people down in Galilee and Israel. But here she is receiving the blessing of Christ and exerting faith in Him. And I, I think this gives us all hope, doesn't it? I suspect that there's a number of you maybe in this room, maybe watching, and you feel a bit like an outsider. You feel different than all the other people. I, I think actually every person feels like that. They, they don't admit it. They, every person sort of feels like they're weird and they're strange, and, and I can confirm everyone's weird. Everyone's strange. We're all a little bit strange, but I, but I suspect that there's someone, maybe you feel that way as far as church and the gospel and the Bible. Maybe you feel like an outsider. You're, you're different than all these regular attendees, all these people, these, these professional expert church people. Maybe you've never done this before in your life. Now, this is a story about someone just like you. In our story today, Jesus left Israel. And I really mean that. It says there in verse 21, they went to the district of, of Tyre and Sidon. We know that this is part of Phoenicia. This would, would be modern-day Lebanon or Syria, north of Israel, the region of Phoenicia. Mark's gospel tells us that they actually went through the city of Sidon and went deeper into the region. That doesn't mean they just sort of stayed on the fringes or on the border. They went deep into a different region than Israel. We don't need to be troubled by the fact that Jesus says in verse 24, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel, because clearly Jesus is not expanding His ministry at this point to the foreign mission field. That's for later. That's for a different phase in history and redemptive history. He's going to ask His disciples to do that after He leaves. And Jesus is not expanding His ministry to a foreign mission field. Clearly, His trip is not to leave Israel in terms of ministry. Now, it says in verse 21, He leaves as a withdrawal, as a retreat. You could say He's taking His disciples on a bit of a, a retreat, a time of rest, a time of rejuvenation, a time of withdrawal, a time of rest, a time of, of prayer, a time of fellowship with one another. But in spite of that, in spite of His time of rejuvenation, Jesus, the lover of souls, cannot help but minister to a foreigner. Even if His official mission is to be constrained to the people of, of Israel in the proper sense, He takes time to minister to this lady. Now, it doesn't say here or in the other account in Mark, it doesn't say that the crowds came out to see Him. He's in a region where He's known but maybe not recognized instantly. We're told earlier in Matthew that, that news had spread to that region. People knew of Jesus, but they probably didn't recognize Him. They didn't know Him by sight. This is long before the day when they would have reproductions being spread out. This is what He looks like. This is who He is. They probably heard stories of Him, of this great teacher in the next region over of the northern Israel of Galilee, but they did not know who He was. Probably He garnered more attention just by the fact that He was a teacher and He had this group of men and probably some others who were following him. So on that day that he entered this new region, he may have been uh, questioned, or maybe people were scratching their heads. Maybe even some were saying, this must be Jesus. But there weren't many. It wasn't big masses of crowds like we saw last week and the week before, especially in Galilee. So there may have been a few people. There may have been some curious glances of Jesus but relative to what we'd seen as, in terms of popularity, nothing like those crowds coming up and bothering him. None except this lady. Look at verse 22. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out 
and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. Mark tells us that this actually happened after Jesus and his followers went inside a house. Perhaps they knew someone, perhaps a a Jewish person or a relative or somebody had moved up there into that region, and they went into that house to retreat inside that home. So you can get the picture here. This lady is outside the house, knocking, shouting out, crying out, perhaps even poking her head into windows. It says in verse 23 that the first response of Jesus, He didn't even answer her. He just ignored her. She was begging. She was pleading with the disciples, coming to the door over and over. And the disciples finally come to Jesus, and they're saying, Jesus, she's bothering us. And they're basically telling Jesus, I think the disciples' attitude may be understandable there. They're saying, Jesus, we, we know you. We know that if you start ministering, if you heal this lady, if you pay attention to this lady, we know what's going to happen, and we know you. You're going to have mercy on people. You love people. You're compassionate. And before you know it, there's going to be this massive crowd. People are going to be digging up the roof to drop people down to see you. We know you. Please tell her to go away. We were just looking forward to this time of retreat, and now it's, well, there goes our retreat. So they're begging with Jesus themselves, saying, Jesus, just send her away. But the story is about the faith of this Canaanite woman, and we'll learn here in a moment why Jesus responds the way he does. He does. But the whole message, really, the whole point of this passage is for us to see that phrase of Jesus, great is your faith, and to say, what faith? What kind of faith does this lady have? How does this draw us to that ultimate statement of faith by Peter later on? What is saving faith like? Number one, saving faith is reverent. Saving faith is reverent. Did you see what the woman says? Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. By reverent, I mean a couple of things. First... It's rightly aimed. She knows only Jesus has the answer to her problems. She came to Jesus because she no longer had faith in any other actions or any other gods. She realized Jesus was the only answer to her problem. I want you to notice something. It says she's a a woman, and I don't think we could possibly understand the nature of things back then, but a a woman addressing a man, especially a, a teacher, in public would be highly unorthodox possibly even inappropriate. This lady goes across these boundaries to address Jesus, and she knows that He's the only person that can help her. If you're a parent, you know this feeling about your children. Her her child was demon-possessed, and and she knew that only Jesus could, could help her in this situation, and parents are probably the most bold. I, I was listening to a preacher preach on this, and he said, if you, if you have a spectrum of people in terms of their boldness, at the very bottom, of course, you have, you have cowards. Above that, you have normal people. Above that, maybe even way above that, you have heroes. And then way above that, you have parents. Because parents will do anything for their kids. Parents are bold, and this woman is bold. Her child was in jeopardy, and she would do whatever it took, even if it's breaking cultural norms. Not only is she a woman, she was ethnically different than Jesus, and this, again, 
There would have been a social boundary in that day. It says she was a Canaanite. Mark says she was a Syrophoenician. It's probably telling us the locale that she grew up. She grew up in the, the Syrian neighborhood or a, a Syrian neighborhood in the, that region of Phoenicia. And, and the Canaanites, calling her a Canaanite woman, this would have been especially stinging for Jewish people. Why? Because the Canaanites were the people who lived in Israel before the people of Israel came in. And actually, they, they sort of settled the Israel, that area of the world after Israel first went in with Abraham, and while they were in bondage, they sort of grew and settled there. In fact, if you read the book of Exodus, you find out, Genesis and Exodus, you find out that God had given them many, many opportunities, the Canaanites, to, to understand Him. For 400 years, possibly more than 400 years, there had been a, a witness. There had been a number of witnesses there. In fact, if you look 400 years before, there were Abraham and his offspring were there testifying to the Lord, and the Canaanites continued to reject for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. And so God marked them out for destruction, complete destruction. They'd had their chance and judgment was upon them. God commissioned the Israelites to go to Canaan and destroy the Canaanites on his behalf. The Israelites disobeyed God. They did not do what God told them to do, that is to execute his judgment on the Canaanites. They disobeyed, and because of their disobedience, that caused them all kinds of problems throughout their history. But because of their disobedience, this Canaanite woman still existed. These, these were her ancestors. She's from the Canaanites. I bring this all up because I want you to see the impossible odds of of a woman like this coming to Jesus, a Jew, a teacher, a man. This was unheard of, a Gentile in that area. She probably worshipped, growing up, she probably worshipped a god of that region called Astarte, which is related to the Old Testament false god of Ashtaroth. Descendant of the Canaanites, a descendant of the vile enemies of the Jews, But this woman, she came to a point in her life where she knew only Jesus could help her. He was the one and only. And she revered him because he was the only answer. You know, I have to say in our our culture, in our city, I think especially in our city and state, there's there's a great love for mysticism, for spirituality. And the culture tells us we must affirm all spirituality. In fact, I've been told on multiple occasions that as a Christian pastor, I ought to study other religions not just to know what they teach, but to, to learn something about God that Christianity can't teach me, that, that the old Hawaiian religions can teach me some things about God, that other pagan religions such as Buddhism or even Mormonism could teach me something about God that the Bible doesn't tell me. We ought to be open to all these religions. Well, clearly this woman is no longer open to all these other religions. She knows in her heart there's only one way. There's only one man that I must go to, and it is Jesus Christ. We shouldn't affirm anything that has the word faith involved in it because those are false faiths. There's only one faith that's a true faith that is the kind of faith that will save you, the kind of faith that will get you to heaven. It is faith in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. Spending many years on the mission field in Zimbabwe, this is a, a problem we did have. Many of the folks who lived in Zimbabwe grew up on a, a sort of animism. That means they believed in these, these ghosts and goblins and, and demons, and they lived in different inanimate objects, and you had to respect them. And so what we found as missionaries is that people were very quick to respond to the message of Jesus. Oh, yeah, because to them, Jesus was just another God that they needed to appease. And so, yes, what do I need to do to appease that God? Pray this prayer, repeat this, this prayer after you, come to church, I'll do that. 
So you had to make clear, no, it's not just coming to Jesus. It's going away from all these false gods. You must reject all these things. And that's precisely what this lady did. And we'll look at this a little more in a moment. This, man, this woman realized Jesus is the only man. He's the only one that could help her. What was that this woman's faith, this kind of faith that said, I believe in everything? No, she turned away from those other gods. She had faith in Christ alone. And we know this because the way in which she addresses Jesus. She says, Lord, Son of David. Now, clearly, she has enough knowledge to understand the, the, the idea, the basic parameters of what the Jewish religion promised, and that the Jewish religion promised that there would be coming a Messiah who was God incarnate, and this, this Messiah would be a descendant of the great King David. And she recognized this, and she respects him, and she reveres him. Matthew eventually points us to that tr- true profession of of Peter. We don't know exactly all that this lady understood. Obviously, it was less than Peter did when Peter made his profession. But clearly, Matthew is trying to get us to see that this woman had genuine faith in Jesus Christ, and she respected Him, and she revered Him as such. This is another thing that I, I think we need to remember. We, we, we live in a day, American Christianity has, has a lot of things good and a lot of things we can look towards, and, and, and there's a lot of great things that come out of American Christianity. And I, and I do say this, just after being on the mission field, and you can go to different countries and you realize that Christianity is so weak that they do look to America as sort of the, a strong version of Christianity. But American Christianity has also introduced all kinds of weak things as well. And American Christianity is responsible for a lot of false things. One of the things that I come across a lot is a very casual irreverence about God. I, I can't point you to any origin, but, but people talk about God as though he's just some sort of drinking buddy. There's no reverence. There's no respect. Perhaps we can point to to the way that that people do worship and the the way people worship in worship services. Jesus is not revered. There's not an attitude of respect. There's not an attitude of honor. There's not an attitude that, that there is someone far greater than us that is imminently and infinitely greater than us whom we are worshiping today. No, it's sort of Jesus is my buddy. Jesus is my friend, and there is a truth to that. Jesus is my friend, but He's also Lord, and we ought to worship Him as such. This is what this lady did. She revered Him as the only way and as Lord, the promised Messiah, the Son of David. Well, what's another characteristic of saving faith? Again, I've already alluded to it. Saving faith is, number two, repentant. Like I said, she grew up worshiping other gods, false gods, Astarte most likely, probably other Greco-Roman gods and goddesses of that age. And you can imagine all the bizarre things if you go back and you read and study the kind of things that would happen in worship of these false gods. It's, it's horrifying. And she, she most likely, if she was like anybody else in that region, in that, that, that Gentile pagan region, she would have joined along, or at least watched people worship in these ways. But she had come to a point in her life where she turned away from them and realized those gods were false. Her fulfillment would not be found in those gods. So in order to to come to Christ, 
In order to approach Christ and to, to come to Him, she had to reject something. To say yes to Jesus would be to say no to false gods. And what she said no to were the gods and practices of her upbringing, the things she was accustomed to, the habits, the traditions. I would suspect for many people, it is in this world, it is false gods, just like this woman. For many others, it's, it's other counterfeit gods. Maybe it's even a counterfeit god that, that says it's the god of the Bible, but it's really not. Maybe it's other counterfeit gods like money and wealth and power and fame. I doubt that anybody here worships Astarte or struggles with that. You probably don't struggle with Middle Eastern gods or Greco-Roman gods. But where do you look for comfort? Where do you look ultimately when it comes to, to joy and peace? Where do you look? When you struggle or you're in trouble, where do you find joy? When, when it comes to to all the things that you do, how is it defined? Ultimately, is it, is it defined as, a, as an act of worship for the one true God, or is it just something that you're trying to, in of itself, find pleasing and joyful, pleasurable for yourself? You know, the richest and perhaps greatest king in history was King Solomon, the king of Israel in sort of the halcyon days of, of Israel. Wealth and peace were abundant. Solomon, even secular scholars assume or insinuate at least that Solomon may have been the richest man to ever live, that he may have been the first king to have a, a worldwide recognition. Even, even the, the leaders, the Queen of Sheba, even people of, over great nations like Egypt and Babylon would come to Solomon to see what he's doing. Solomon garnered the respect of people all across the world. In fact, some scholars believe that his reaches went all the way across the Atlantic, all the way to South America. There's evidence. Perhaps he even had a trans-Pacific or trans-Atlantic reach. King Solomon had it all, wealth, women, riches, belongings. Again, some suggest the richest man, most powerful man to ever live. But what did he say in Ecclesiastes? It's all vanity. It's all worthless. It's all useless. You walk through Ecclesiastes, he talks about how he pursued education and knowledge and wisdom. It proved to be vain. He pursued women, hedonism, all kinds of fleshly pursuits, and he couldn't find true joy in those things. He pursued wealth. He pursued power. He pursued influence. And in the end of it, he says, none of it filled me. All of it is vanity. In the end, he says, man should fear God and follow God. That's it. That's where true joy and true purpose comes from. That's why God created humanity, so that we would fear Him and follow Him and worship Him in that way. And you'll never find joy. You'll never find true joy. You might find momentary or, or, or sometimes even, even extended times of joy and just hedonism and stuff and power and wealth. But ultimately, there's that God-shaped vacuum in your heart, and you know down deep inside... That joy is not true joy. True faith is turning away from all those things and saying, you know what, I find my true joy, I find my true worship of Jesus Christ alone, and that means turning away from the pursuit of all these other things. It doesn't mean you, continue, you don't continue to work or you don't do things, but you, now you work for the glory of God. 
Now you enjoy life for the glory of God. Now you rest and you go on vacation, not, not as something that is self-pleasing and hedonistic. You go do these things because you want to worship God. You want to rejuvenate yourself so you can better worship God. And so you turn away from the pursuit of all these other things in order to follow Christ. This woman's faith was not just some sort of intellectual or emotional momentary thing. No, it, is a, it was a turning away. It was a repentance. In fact, faith and repentance go hand in hand, don't they? Repentance is, is, is always the inevitable product of genuine faith. There's no such thing as, as faith without a change in your attitude, in your works, James says. There's no such thing as a genuine faith without a change in your life, repentance. Charles Spurgeon said, Repentance is the inseparable companion of faith. Faith and repentance are but two spokes of the same wheel, two handles of the same plow. Repentance of sin and faith in divine pardon are the warp and woof of the fabric of real conversion. This woman, her faith was defined not only a reverence by a reverence of Christ, because it was rightly aimed and she worshipped Him, but also... It was defined by repentance. She turned away from the false god. She turned to Christ, knowing that He was the only way and He is the only one worthy of her worship. What else? Faith, saving faith is persistent. You could say persevering or enduring. Now, this is sort of the strange part of the story. Right? You read the story, and, and the thing that sort of sticks out is Jesus' initial response. That's sort of weird, the way Jesus responds to her and interacts with her. I'm sure you noticed it. Verse 23, it says, He answered her not a word. So he just kind of ignored her. Here she is, poking her head through the windows or knocking on the door and crying out. And Jesus is in that house just ignoring her as though it's not happening. He answered her not a word. Verse 24, Jesus takes it to another level. He says to her, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Almost sounds like he's saying, well, you're not a member of our church. Sorry. And then, almost sounds like to us like an insult, he said, it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. In other words, you're a dog. I'm not going to throw away a miracle to someone like you. Now, what in the world is going on here? Well, look at each one of these. First, she comes up. She's asking. Jesus says nothing. Pretty amazing given the compassion that's already been displayed of Jesus. I mean, it sort of stands in contrast to the compassion. It seems like anytime anybody has need, before they even sort of get the words off their lips, Jesus is already healing them. He's, he's feeling it. Remember, he was in the boat when he saw the crowds, and he felt compassion, and that what, that's what compelled him to row the boat over to the shore and go up and spend all day long healing people and then feeding all 10,000 of them or more. So this is sort of in contrast to that. This sort of seems weird that Jesus would not show that compassion. Did he suddenly just lose compassion? Jesus is not saying anything. He's quiet. He's not responding. I don't think Jesus has lost his compassion. Peter goes on to say Jesus is full of compassion. Then at the second thing that happens here, the disciples come up to him and say, Lord, just send her away. Jesus, just get rid of her. Tell her to, to leave. And he calls out to her and says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now, this is a little bit helpful. This gives us a little bit of an understanding. And Jesus is telling us, my, my mission, what I'm, 
I'm trying to do here, in terms of my ministry, in terms of my mission, it is all to be in the context of Israel. I'm to gather disciples in Israel of the Israelites. I am to minister in Israel to the Israelites. I'm to teach the Israelites, and I'm to die at the hand of the Israelites in Israel. My ministry is not an international ministry. It is an Israel ministry, and that's this phase of, of my ministry. Now, later on, we know that Jesus will say, go into all the world, but right now, that's this phase of ministry. It is a Jewish ministry. It is a ministry that's in Israel. This is all part of Old Testament fulfillment. So he, he creates these barriers, and he's, the first barrier is that he just ignored her. The second barrier to, to, to her getting ministered to is, is he said, listen, my ministry is a Jewish ministry. It's an Israelite ministry. Now, this helps us understand his last comment there, verse 26. She continues to plead with him. He said, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now, what's he saying? That sounds sort of rude. Sounds like he's calling her a dog here. And he is in a way, but not in the way in which you think. In fact, the word dogs there is not the word dog that you might think. In uh, their language, they had different words for dogs, much like we do. He does not call her a dog like a Jew would call a Gentile uh, a cur or a, a, a vile uh, mutt of a dog. The word that he uses there is the word for puppy or pet. So the image that he's giving there, he's saying, listen, when, when you, your family eats, mom doesn't cook dinner or dad doesn't cook dinner and feed it first to the pets and then give the kids the crumbs of the leftovers. Now, what does he do? He, he cooks the meal, he feeds the family, and the leftovers are given to the pets. What do we used to have? They don't call it doggy bag. They can take out boxes now, but we used to call it doggy bags, right? You go to a restaurant, you get a doggy bag. Can I have a doggy bag? And they, they give you a little bag, and you put the, your leftovers in there, and you give it to your dog when you get home. That's what he's talking about. You're a little pet. So it's not a, really a term of, of insult. It's, it's even a, a little bit of a term of an affection. It's more about order, right? There's an order that things are supposed to happen. The kids get the food first. And the dogs get the leftovers. You don't feed your puppies the meal and then make your children eat the leftovers. You, you start with the children. So this is exactly what he just said, only in a little bit more uh, uh, vibrant of an uh, illustration. So here's a third barrier. You're a Gentile, and thus, though loved, in second position. You're going to receive the gospel second, not first. Now, we understand what Jesus is saying. Why is Jesus putting up these barriers. I mean, if we understand that in order to fulfill prophecy, the command of God, He would minister Israel first, then to the disciples, the ends of the world, why is He getting into all this with her? Why doesn't He just not minister to her? If that's the case, why not just say, you know, it's not, I don't need to deal with her. Why does He feel like He has to explain all of this to her, give us sort of this theological history? Now, let me tell you why. Jesus knows that genuine faith is a persevering faith. It's a faith that persists. It presses and endures and struggles and continues and presses on. That's genuine faith. Genuine faith climbs these hurdles no matter what. True saving faith is, is determined. It's persevering no matter what. We learn this already in the book of Matthew. Matthew 7 says, the gate is narrow and few there are who find it. It's this idea of searching. Luke chapter 9, a famous passage, we must deny ourselves, take up our cross. It's not easy to become a Christian. It's hard. It's all about self-denial and endurance and perseverance and persistence. 
Later in the same chapter of Luke, he says, you, you may lose your home in order to follow me. You may lose your family to follow me. You may lose your parents. You may lose others in order to follow me. You may lose your wealth. You may lose your position. That's why Jesus said in Luke chapter 13 that people with true faith agonize their way into the kingdom. It's not easy. It's not simple. There's agony involved. Ladies and gentlemen, becoming a Christian is not easy. There's conviction of sin. There's abandonment of, 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 of false gods. There's a realization of your, of your own condition before God. There's, there's all of this must happen, and, and you must put your life on the line and say, okay, I'll be anything. I'll drop everything, become a missionary. I'll die. I'll receive cancer. I'll receive whatever you want, Lord. I give my life to you. That's what it is to become a Christian. And true faith says, I'll do it. You're worth it. I give you everything. Jesus said this earlier in chapter... Uh, in, in earlier in Matthew, his mother came to him and his brothers and are asking to come and talk to him. We find out in another gospel that they're trying to, to calm him down. And Someone says, your mother and your brothers are here. And Jesus says, who are my, brother, my mother and brothers? Is it simply those who are genetically connected to me? No. My mother and brothers who are, are the ones who fear God and follow him. And so what Jesus is doing here is giving this woman a series of tests, a series of hurdles. False faith, generic faith, bland faith, simple emotional faith, intellectual faith, that's not enough. The only thing that would burst through those barriers, the only thing that would climb those hurdles is genuine faith. And that's precisely what this woman does. I love what this woman says. She says, but Jesus, even the puppies get leftovers. I want to meet this lady someday. Not only is she full of faith, but she's bright. She takes that, that illustration that Jesus used and turns it on its head and says, hey, well, puppies still get crumbs. She doesn't care if she's second in line. She doesn't care if salvation history is mapped out in a certain way. She just wants to have faith in Christ. She doesn't care what obstacle she has to climb. This is great faith, and she persists in her desire to follow Jesus. Well, this leads us to a fourth and final characteristic of genuine saving faith. Number four, it is humble. It is humble. In Western cultures, and really a lot of different cultures, we're taught from childhood to not be a doormat. Don't get walked on. Don't let people insult you. Don't pe let people tell you you're not something great, something wonderful. Don't let anybody get in your way. Don't be disrespected. Don't let your rights be violated. We're, we're told that when they are, when someone walks on us or violates us or accuses us falsely or, 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 or says something about us or to us, we have the right to feel insulted and be offended. That's what our culture teaches us. We have the right to be offended. We have the right to be insulted. We ought to assert ourselves. So Jesus said the same thing to us. If we were the woman, we Western people, we were the woman in that illustration. If we were the woman and, and Jesus said what he said to us, we wouldn't have responded. Did even the dogs get crumbs? We would have said something like that. How dare you speak to me like that? You're a racist. How dare you say I can't have a place at the table? That I'm some kind of 
puppy, some sort of second-class citizen. How dare you? I've done all this. I've been doing all this, and I've come to show you my faith. How dare you treat me like this? We live in a culture that only knows assertiveness, that only knows pride, that only knows our own rights, our own abilities, that we can earn and demand what we believe we deserve. The worst thing that can happen to us is that someone disrespect us or insult us, therefore we demand what we think is our due. This lady, however, said none of that. She didn't say, Lord, look at all I've done. You owe me. Don't disrespect me. No way. She came to Jesus with assertiveness, but not assertiveness based on her own rights, her own privilege. Her assertiveness came based on what she believed to be true about Christ. One of the commentators I read had said it like this. This lady came to Jesus not saying, Lord, give me what I deserve on the basis of my goodness. Rather, she said, Lord, give me what I don't deserve based on your goodness. This lady was humble. This lady knew she didn't deserve anything. She knew she didn't deserve healing. Her daughter didn't deserve healing. She didn't deserve to be helped in this way at all. She was willing to be a second-class citizen. She was willing to be nothing to him. She just wanted to follow him. And that's the attitude of genuine faith. It's knowing that you don't deserve anything. Yet because of his righteousness provided by his goodness, you have faith in him. Verse 28, Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And the daughter was healed instantly. The word Jesus uses there about faith is literally the word mega. You have mega faith. Some people believe that that Jesus was a surfer. Mega faith, dude. No, it was a great faith, a faith of humility, a faith of persistence, a faith of repentance, a faith that's full of reverence, pointed directly at Jesus Christ. Have you exerted that kind of faith in Christ? Does that define you? Are you growing in that faith? Is that the kind of faith that you pray for? Even as Christians, we can stray away from genuine faith and get into silly thoughts about what faith is. Are you growing in your repentance and your reverence? Are you growing in your persistence? Are you growing in your humility? Or maybe you've never done it. I pray, dear friend, that you would have that kind of faith today. Let's pray God would grant us such a faith. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this truth. May we have true saving faith. May it be definitive of who we are. May this be the kind of faith and kind of people that we are, that we look to Christ alone in, in reverence and respect. May we be, we be a people who are repentant, who know that we have failed you in so many ways and, and seek every day to turn away from, from sin and the pursuit of other gods and other things, other pleasures. May we redefine our lives in an effort to, to honor you, that any, any dollar we make, any thing that we purchase, anything that we pursue, whether it's a job or a promotion, Lord, it would be done only insofar as we're trying to worship you. 
Lord, may we have a faith that persists, that endures, that perseveres. May that be a faith that no matter what comes our way, we would trust in you and believe in you. May the faith that we have be a humble faith. Lord, all of us Christians, we need this. We need to continue and persevere in this kind of faith. And Lord, we know that there are those among us watching, perhaps even here today, who have never had this genuine faith. So grant them that faith, birth in their heart a desire to have this genuine, true, self-abandoning faith. Grant them repentance, perseverance, respect, and humility. Grant them true faith. We ask in Jesus' name.